Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, the real Ty Cobb, meaning the first Ty Cobb, the Ty Cobb who played baseball and lived in an era where men could wear ridiculous mustaches and get away with it, but that Ty Cobb didn't, as opposed to, say, this, our current Ty Cobb, who doesn't live in that era but still wears that mustache. Anyway, the first Ty Cobb, just like this Ty Cobb, also left a very, very high-profile job, the highest-profile job he ever had. It was his manager and outfielder for the Detroit Tigers, and he left it amidst scandal, resonances of today. Ty Cobb, the baseball player, was accused of game-fixing back in the 1920s, but pled, no collusion. And in the mix was a stern, respected, craggly-faced Republican, registered Republican jurist. His name was Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He was the commissioner of baseball. He held hearings. He was unsure whether he should ask Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, Cobb's co-defendant, some questions in advance. But what happened was a key witness in this game-fixing allegation scandal, a pitcher named Dutch Leonard, one of two Dutch Leonards in MLB history, didn't show up, didn't testify, and Judge Landis let Ty play. So Ty Cobb took his talents to Philadelphia, where he was uh, 40 years old in 1927. And you know what? He still hit 375. He was still among the top 10 or 15 best hitters in baseball. Ty Cobb retired the next year. Now, there's a scene in the Ron Shelton movie about Ty Cobb that uh, goes like this. It's, it's Cobb's waning days. That's when the movie takes place. An older Ty Cobb is on screen. He's maybe 30 years out from having played. And he's down at spring training watching some young players. I think Willie Mays is among them. And someone says, hey, Ty. Uh, in fact, it's Al Stump, who's his biographer. He says, hey, Ty, that Willie Mays kid, he had 347 the other year. You had a lifetime average of 367. What do you think you'd hit against today's pitchers? And Cobb thinks for a little while, and he says, I think I'd hit about 340. 340? Why 340? And he says, well, I am 70 goddamn years old. So I can imagine this Ty Cobb in our current timeline, our Ty Cobb, being asked one day down the road, hey, Ty, you defended the president. You told him not to answer Robert Mueller's questions. Knowing what you know now, what would your advice be? And he'd think for a little bit, and he'd say, I tell Donald Trump to follow his instincts because they're always right. You would? That's what you'd say? And then future Ty Cobb would say, well, as you know, this is the future, and currently we are living in a dystopian hellscape created after the president so bungled that interview that he was forced to fire the special counsel, and then Congress impeached Rosenstein, and the rule of law crumbled into a heap at Sean Hannity's feet. Of course I'm going to tell him he's a genius. I have no legal protection, and Trump's stash wax is the only thing that keeps my whiskers aloft. God damn it. End scene. On the show today, my beautiful, dark, twisted Alex Jones guest spot. But first, Michael Hayden, four-star general, ran the NSA under Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, ran the CIA under Bush and Obama. He is here to, well, to pretty much sound the alarm about the unique dangers we are facing from a president who ignores, distorts, and contradicts facts to a public that is largely indifferent or inattentive to that and to a foreign adversary who can't believe the situation they looked into. Michael Hayden on The End of Intelligence.
Michael Hayden is the only person to ever hold the title of head of the NSA and head of the CIA. And he is out with a new book called The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. I want to, before I even start the interview, compliment the book. The book, you might think it's a little like uh, Mr. Hayden's last memoir, which was a memoir, which was about the programs he oversaw. But what it really is, is a synthesis of a lot of the thinking that is out there. It's a survey course, and he quotes Edward Luce and Elliot Cohen and Tom Nichols, just to name three of the, I think, 20 people named in the book who've been guests on The Gist. And now General Hayden is a guest too. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Happy to be here, Mike. So the assault on intelligence, it's a good pun and it's exactly what you're talking about because even though the book is a before, during, and after with the Trump campaign, what you're really talking about is truth and facts versus something else. And you think that we're very dangerously veering into an area where the something else is overwhelming the former. Yeah, becoming dominant. I see a three-tier thing out there, mm-hmm. and, and tier one is the biggest, uh, most important, and tier one's us, and how we arrive at decisions. And here, it's the whole post-truth dynamic, decision-making based on emotion, preference, tribe, grievance, rather than ob- objective reality. And that's pretty widespread in America and some other countries. Not yet universal, but it's out there, and we suffer for it. So that's one. The second layer is, frankly, the president, who, who had the wisdom, if that's the right word, to identify that trend, to take advantage of it during the campaign. And I think as president, his words and actions, particularly his words, worsened that trend, all right, towards decision-making on something other than data. And then the, the third layer of this cake is we've got a foreign adversary coming through the perimeter wire, yeah. knowing what's going on here. And exploiting and taking advantage of this for their own purposes, which is by and large just to weaken us. And so all these things are are going on simultaneously. And you went to 50 countries as head of the CIA and and never Russia. Never Russia. So that tells you it wasn't that we ignored Russia, but it wasn't seen that it was very important for the head of the CIA to go there. So so what I say is when people ask me when I was director, so uh, what's your priorities? I have this little alphabet soup we use in Washington, CTCP, ROW, counterterrorism, counterproliferation, rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree we touched Russia, it was in that third pot of stew with with a whole bunch of other things. And this is you actually fulfilling your role as a public servant, because I think that's what the public would have had. The public would have prioritized it as well. priorities. And I can't say that you were wrong in terms of, this is what I think about Russia. I think that they're the sort of threat like measles or rubella. Yes, these are bad, but there is an inoculation. And all you have to do is take the inoculation, which is to know that Russia is trying to do this and rebut them. And push back. That's all you have. It's not hard to do, but... Very bizarrely, we get this candidate and this confluence of circumstances that not only doesn't want to push back, but perhaps yeah. wants to walk, work hand in glove with them. So, so to, to, to be fair, I had my complaints during the last administration. I was on a morning talk show, actually. We were talking about something Putin had done to upset us. And Scarborough was kind of signing off. And I go, hey, Joe, Joe, can I say one more thing before we break? Yeah, General, what do you got? And I said, Joe, you realize he's doing this. And he doesn't have more than a pair of sevens in his hand, but he's going to continue to take the pot until somebody calls. Mm -hmm. So my complaint against President Obama was he gave him too much space. 
what was he doing then? Uh, was he invading? Was it the invasion of Georgia? Uh, we, what was the specific the thing? Of the Crimea. Right. All right. So this was we, when you were on Morning Show. Seizure all this, yeah. of the Donbass. We had pressure against the Baltic states. Right. We had him showing up in the Middle East for the first time in half a century. Right. Because but to be, but we to gave be, him space. But to be fair, calling him then would be about, yes, their U.S. interests, but their U.S. interests way over exactly. there. Exactly. And you're not asking Americans to do anything. Right. So this is a multiple layer story. So let me get into the, the second layer because it's it's actually very important to the book and to the whole to the whole plot line. So let me begin in Texas in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. All right. So I become commander of something called the Air Intelligence Agency. We're on the cutting edge of cyber stuff. The Air Force was pretty far ahead. I become the commander, and my staff teaches me a ton. Mike, we had a debate down there that would have rivaled Jesuits at a medieval university <laughs> on on whether we were in the cyber business uh-huh. or the information business, whether we were about cyber dominance or information dominance. Cyber being obviously computer network yeah, attack yeah. and exploitation. And, and the year was uh, mid nineties. And the point was, this is seen as two different things. Two different things. Yeah. And and when we began to think about information dominance, psychological operations, sure. influence, we got whoa. Oh, that's really hard. Yeah. This cyber thing's tough enough. Yeah. Let's stick to cyber. And we now have a cyber command. Right. We don't have an information command. Yeah. Number one, uh, it was really a challenging task. And number two, you really couldn't get very far in it in America without implicating First and Fourth Amendment rights. And so we backed away. The story I tell Mike is, and this is something we were late to learn, mm-hmm. is the Russians went to door number two. Yeah. The Russians went to the information dominance door. They have a general who's now chief of the general staff, but appointed by Putin, Valery Gerasimov, who wrote about contactless war, using informational weapons against a target country's population to achieve objectives. The Russians did. They used it, first of all, in their own population to bubble them. And then they used it against the West or in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And then in 2015... They took the show on the road. Yeah. They brought it here to North America. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I would say about your cake. Let's talk about the actual flour and the sugar, which is the technology itself. Uh, I think that that has changed everything. So in 95, when you're debating information and cyber, information probably meant to you newspapers and TV. And I've been to Fort Bragg. I've been to the PSYOPs. PSYOP operations. Sure, black ops, white ops, which is, you know, how much propaganda do we use? Once the information and the cyber co-mingle, it becomes an entirely different ballgame. And I do think... Americans were late to recognizing the power of that. So, I mean, I speak for the government. I've already admitted, yeah, we were late. We we were over here at door one. They were at door two. But American industry is late, too. You saw the testimony of Mark Zuckerberg. Here is an example of technology and ambition getting ahead of law, policy, and norms. And we have... What we have, by the way, we'd have this even without the Russians trying to manipulate it. Yes, because we, we, the species, we don't know how to deal with the tsunami of information that the social media now now gives us. Yeah, and I think that's all true. But I think there can be some countermeasures to the threat Donald Trump represents. We can really address what oh, yeah, Donald we're, Trump we're, is doing if we had the will to we do are so. Are bright people? So let me give you some low hanging fruit and then some. Really heavy lifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the low-hanging fruit is, you know, the rules for political advertising have to be the same in social media as they are on network TV. You don't want to filter news or suppress news, just like you don't want to suppress movies. 
But I do like Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. I go to Rotten Tomatoes to see whether a movie's worth my time. Mm -hmm. You could have a Rotten Tomatoes-like system for all these sites that keep popping up whose origins you find hard to identify. So So there are steps that we can take. You know, where do you go with more rather than less confidence? Doesn't mean doesn't mean I don't go look at a badly rated movie. Yeah, it, but it means I know what I'm get, getting into. I think it comes down to people like Trump for other reasons, possibly, probably racist reasons, speaking to the id of people and the frustration of people, mm-hmm. and then we find out there's this huge excusing, <clears throat> this post hoc excusing of all these lies about the Russian campaign. So I don't know that a rating system s- solves that. I think that what what it takes is 20 senators, probably currently Republican senators, maybe 40 uh, representatives, and maybe that'll change in November, to just stand up and say, no, you're not firing the special counsel, oh, yeah. and you can't lie about oh, yeah. this. When well, you come into these specific things? Yeah. But, but, but we're also addressing the broader dynamic yes. of how this new technology can get harder. But other than the Trumpistas, there's no one that I know of in the government, or like you recently out of the government, who doesn't want to do this. Right. Who doesn't want to take on Russians interfering with the election. Uh, absolutely. But we have trouble getting the president kind of issuing the set of orders yeah. that would launch the Starfleet. Yeah. (laughs) Let me ask you a couple of questions about things that are more recently in the news since the book went to bed. Well, this first question I want to ask you about Facebook because you mentioned Facebook. I I was listening to a talk that you gave a couple of years ago at, uh, I think, Cambridge. You talked about a number of things, but one of the themes was trying to convince your fellow Americans that the uh, NSA was in their rights to use data collection, for instance. I was thinking about the conversation, the attempt to, the tension around that. My question is, has Facebook done your job for you? It doesn't seem like these days people are up in arms about their data privacy. And it wasn't that the government convinced them. It's that they willingly gave it away. And now that seems like that game's over. It really has clouded the issue. Now, there's a distinction between surrendering your privacy to a corporation and uh, giving up a sense of your privacy to an institution that has police powers, right? <laughs> the federal right. government, all right? So there is a difference. And I was fond of saying, and probably in the same talk, that this reasonable expectation of privacy, which is the benchmark, uh, may be more decided by Mark Zuckerberg than it will be decided by the Congress. That's right, because you were there in England saying, you know, in Europe they have an expectation of privacy yeah. that is pretty much a fundamental right, and right. in the United States the expectation of privacy is don't tap your phones. I think in the couple years since that, everyone's expectation of privacy has shifted, or, or at least, you know, so, has so shown to So to make to this shifted. more complicated and less resolved, it's not just redefining privacy, it may also be defining what we're talking about. Let me, let me explain mm-hmm. that, all right? We have generally argued over whether the government can or cannot have something, uh, phone records, intercepted communications, and so on. We are fast getting to the place where it will be unavoidable that the government and everyone else will have something. And, and so the debate may no longer be over access, which might not be able to be prevented, the debate may more legitimately be over what then are you allowed to do with the information over which you have access. So back to Facebook. Boy, he knows more about me than I'm comfortable with, but I probably can't prevent that given the nature of Facebook. I want more rules on what it is he's allowed to do with that information. Mm -hmm. And that may be the new debate. 
I want to ask you about the presentation that Benjamin Netanyahu gave. Now, from what I understand, there was nothing factually inaccurate about Correct. what he said. Absolutely. But the huge context is we knew all that already. Yep. So did you did you know all that already? So so we knew the broad outline of this. Yeah. Clearly, you know, when you when you get a truckload of documents and digital data, you're gonna fill in more of the fine print. But this was all about the Iranian program before 2003, which is when they actually stopped building the bomb, building the weapon. The estimate we created in 07 said that. Let me tell you, truth to power, walking that into George W. Bush and Dick Cheney was not an easy lift, (laughs) saying, well, we should still be tough with them, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, but they kind of stopped building the bomb four years ago. All right? Tough, tough conversation. But to their credit, they accepted it. And then Mike, they directed I to make it public because it was inconsistent with things they had been saying earlier, back to being forthright with the American people. We also said they're lying. They did have a program before 2003, so don't believe their denials. They're keeping a little bit of an oar in the water with some dual-use technology stuff, and at a minimum, they're keeping the options open. That's from a document from December of 2007. Okay. How does that differ from the presentation two days ago? Uh, There were visuals. He unveiled the CD-ROMs. And there's more fine print. Yes. Fine. Go beat the Iranians up one more time for lying because we got more data. Okay. So here's my question. Does that, do you think that fits in with our post-fact society. Because even though what he was saying is true, the post-fact aspect of it is to pretend that this should in any way have an impact on whether you recertify the deal. Like to do a show and say, oh, look at all this information that's 10 years old that everyone knew, and then to pretend, therefore, you can't uh, vote to recertify the deal seems to me more than a bad argument. It seems to be uh, post-fact. Um, yeah, it's it's using something that should not be used to make this argument. Although okay. you can create the emotive effect, mm-hmm. you show the visual, you show the prime minister, right. you. And, and I understand that <clears throat> politics are yeah. a part of these decisions, and he's yeah. using whatever powers of persuasion. But there's one other thing I want to ask. Yeah. So many analysts of that said Benjamin Netanyahu had an audience of one, President Trump. Well, shouldn't President Trump have known this? Shouldn't it be he have been briefed actually, on this? Vice President Pence has said we we did know this, right? All so, right? so that audience, one thing, if that's true, that's yeah. more dangerous than yeah, anything but else. It, okay, so so there are several scenarios. One is he is pre- creating on behalf of the president an American political context for the president to be tough. Okay, that's one. Another, and, and, and we need to consider this. Um, <clears throat> maybe the audience wasn't. That audience. Maybe the audience was the IAEA. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the big game plan is to give the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN body that oversees it, you see, I told you these people were lying. Check these out. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and then launch the IAEA against the Iranians. And you push the Iranians, frankly, the way they should have been pushed before we accepted the deal. That might, actually might be a useful step. And it, in my view, better than blowing up the arrangement next week. Absent that sort of presentation, the IAEA wouldn't have a fire lit under them? What the IAEA wouldn't have was this trove of documents Mm -hmm. that says, now we know they're lying about that. You need to press them on this, on that, on the other thing. Okay, here's my last question. Is President Trump's cell phone secure? We uh, told President Obama, who wanted to keep his cell phone secure, that if he insisted on using his cell phone... He is vulnerable to interception from practically every unfriendly embassy in his national capital.
And so President Trump did not take that advice, and he's using his cell phone. A lot of presidents keep using their phone. One helps. One hopes they don't say anything they shouldn't be saying. That One hopes that they think about who's listening before they say what they say. General Michael Hayden is the author of The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Thank you very much. Thank good you, to meet you. Thanks. That was good. And now the spiel. Kanye West has looked back at 400 years of U.S. history and armed with 280 characters of insight on Twitter, he's made some pronouncements. And so now Mr. West is elevated to our highest temple of knowledge, the great salon of this day, the Alex Jones Show. Why? Why have we paid so much attention and lent so much credibility to the man who once said, my apologies, Are you into astrology? Because I'm trying to make it to Uranus. My point isn't to decry Uranus humor. Everyone likes Uranus humor. Uranus humor is so prevalent when they sent a probe, I know, a probe to Uranus, I remember this. They started changing the pronunciation, but they changed it to Uranus, as if this was something anyone ever said. I guess CNN didn't want to say Uranus so much. They changed it to Uranus. What they didn't realize is that Uranus would be the funniest word on the planet to an eighth grader if it weren't for the existence of Uranus. My point is that the line should be, my apologies, are you into astronomy? Because I'm trying to make it to Uranus. Just like the line shouldn't have been, George Bush doesn't care about black people, it should be Donald Trump doesn't care about black people. Kanye West. I'm going to break down Kanye West's genius, his particular form of genius, in a second. But first, let us consider some of the other icons in the sphere of hip-hop who would make perfectly sensible public intellectuals if they only had Kanye West's platform and penchant for self-promotion. Cool Modi. He's center-left. As the author of the famous 1989 position paper, I Go to Work, He, if anything, seems to be an adherent of Jack Kemp's ideas of neighborhood empowerment zones. The level-headed policy prescriptions of Dougie Fresh and both members of the Get Fresh crew would not cause me any disquiet. Other rappers, other rappers too, should be heard from more than Kanye West. The sporty thieves, in truth, more athletic than felonious, they have an interesting wildlife conservation program. And even, let's, let's go more contemporary, Waka Flocka Flame has some interesting thoughts about the use of cloture as a means to subvert the popular will. And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Lil Yachty currently a visiting fellow at Brookings? I think we could benefit from his analysis. Not just Lil Yachty, all the Lils. Lil John, Lil Wayne, Lil Kim, Lil Bow Wow, Lil Romeo, Lil Uzi Vert, all of them. The whole Lil lot of them would be better to hear from on America, on slavery, on Donald Trump, than the universally acknowledged singular genius that is Kanye West. So here's my theory. First, let me acknowledge your theory, what you're thinking, your way of explaining Kanye West, which goes something like this. The dude's a megalomaniacal blowhard. You are correct. You are correct. I'm not saying you're wrong. And that really does explain 90-something percent of it. Here's a guy who once recorded a song called I Am a God, parentheses, featuring God. Yes, that is true. That is true. He did that. So the two theories, megalomaniacal and specific branch of megalomaniacal, they dovetail a little bit. 
You see, I think that a lot of these famous figures are megalomaniacs. I think rappers usually are, and it's not a flaw. You need that. You need to believe in yourself unbelievably to succeed, and most rappers are not of the manner born. There is something, in fact, very Trumpy about highly successful people whose success is saying things that get attention, and sometimes those things are wacky or out there, but you have a fan base who keeps telling you how right you are. We've seen that playbook. And then what you have once you achieve success based on saying words that could be seen as controversial or mark you as iconoclastic, true of Trump, true of most rappers, what you have or what we expect is then in the future when someone says, oh, you've said a bunch of words that you can't say anymore. You've said a bunch of words that you should take back. All those successful people are going to say, nuh-uh, that's not how it works. I have an entirely different data set that yields a different conclusion. But there is something specific to Kanye West's genius or supposed genius that I think allows his ego to fester and his mechanisms for self-awareness and his filters to fall away. And this this part's totally different from Trump. So I'm not a rap expert by any means. I'm not a huge fan of Kanye West. There are some hip-hop artists that I like and whose records I buy. I, I do own some um, college dropout. I think I have that and Jesus Walks is a single and so forth, but I don't have the Pablo album or any of the other latest ones. And I, I will acknowledge it's just unquestionable. He has really good rhyming skills. He has excellent music and production skills. He has fantastic packaging skills. I want to give him a lot of credit. But where he does get a lot of credit and where what I think might be a problem is that he gets tons of credit for his honesty and his vulnerability. Sometimes honesty just means I'm meaner than the next guy. I'm being honest, spilling the tea and so forth. But it's more the vulnerability. In hip hop, there's a massive amount of braggadocio and diss tracks and masculine swagger. And Kanye definitely has all that. But a bit earlier than most other rappers, he talked about his doubts and his insecurities, and he did it a lot more fully and a lot more openly than others were doing at the time. It seems to me, and I checked this with, with some bona fide rap experts, and they said I was pretty much right, that you're much more likely to hear on a Kanye record, self-abnegation, than you would on a record by 50 Cent or Jay-Z or Nas. These days, Drake is all emotionally available, but Kanye was at the vanguard. No Kanye, no Drake. The thing is, I don't know. He's out there. He's telling you, these are my flaws. He's telling you, these are my shortcomings. But I don't know that he's ever changed. In fact, because that's his stock and trade, and because that's what he got so much credit for, I don't know that there's ever been an incentive to change. He put his flaws out there. He owned his flaws, but owning the flaws isn't working on the flaws. I think this happens so much in our society, especially with entertainers who get credit for sharing. I think he actually revels in examining his own flaws. I think he celebrates. I definitely know he's selling his fallibility. What I'm saying is that Kanye West recognizes and makes art out of his defects, but doesn't seem to spend much time turning them into virtues. And I'm not even talking about the emotional stuff going inside Kanye West, just the stuff on the surface, the quality of the logic he engages in doesn't seem to be advancing. I think about Jay-Z. Lyrically, he might not be as dexterous as Kanye, but he seems so much more mature, so much more comfortable, so much calmer. When he and Kanye collaborated on Watch the Throne, it was clear who was the king and who was the princeling. Kanye, 
Of course, to acknowledge, he just turned 40. Jay-Z is eight years older. Some of the lack of maturation might literally be he's not as mature as a guy like Jay-Z. But he's still a lot more adolescent than adult. And he's celebrated for that. I was thinking about other areas of art, like comedy. So Louis C.K. and Woody Allen, those are guys who reveled in their flaws. But did they really address them? And then I think about other comedians like Gary Shandling or Jon Stewart, who actually do seem to have shown emotional growth. And by the way, I'm not sure it makes their comedy better. Hard to judge with Gary Shandling, who is dead. Jon Stewart's in retirement or semi-retirement. But both these guys had the same kind of dollops of neuroses running through their acts as Louis or Woody Allen. And they got mileage out of it. And they mined that flaw. But they also seem to have addressed that flaw and grown as people. I may be wrong. I definitely am on firmer ground when I am assessing Jewish comics than black rappers. Kanye West once said, my music isn't just music, it's medicine. Well, now his public pronouncements are poison. And I hope, I really hope he really wrestles with that. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname recommends British rapper Mike Skinner to be the new infrastructure czar. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, thinks that Philadelphia rapper Robert Rameek Williams could oversee fracking policy. Meek Mill's deep drills. It's just the kind of government initiative the energy sector needs. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, thinks that maybe some members of the Wu-Tang Clan can be tapped to promote abstinence-only education, specifically Rhythm Method Man. Of course, Wu-Tang Clan is for the children. As always, thank you to Slate Plus listeners who help support our show. If you're not a member yet, learn more at slate.com slash gist plus. It's just $35 for your first year, and you will get ad-free versions of this and other Slate Plus podcasts. The gist, you know, maybe instead of taking rappers and turning them political, we take the president and turn him into a rapper. Unfortunately, the name's Ludacris, Heavy D, and Old Dirty Bastard are taken. Oom-pru-de-pru-du-pru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>